when I was a kid, I wanted to be a child star. <laughs> and now I'm a TV writer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Bridge Munoz-Leibowitz. Bridge is a comedy writer and producer whose credits include HBO Max's Love Life, which was recently renewed for a second season, Pop TV's One Day at a Time, Disney Plus's Diary of a Future President, and NBC's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, among others. She recently signed an overall deal with Sony Pictures Television, where she'll be developing comedy projects for the studio aimed at network, cable, and streaming. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Bridge. Hey, thanks, Ben. Of course. So we always start with something that's recently sparked our curiosity. For me, uh, it's actually Documentary Now, a super fun comedy that Bill Hader and Seth Meyers and a lot of other great people were involved with. I was just watching, re-watching, I should say, the Juan Likes Rice and Chicken episode, which is... That's my favorite one. It's my favorite as well. I was re-watching it last <laughs> night. And what's amazing is it's funny on its own, but if anybody has also seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is uh, which it's parroting, it makes you really realize what a genius episode of television it is. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, I, I'm just so curious how they were able to nail it down so well and what their process is overall when they're parroting these documentaries, because they do such a great job. Yeah, I've really enjoyed that episode. And for me, I, it was in, in particular because like of my Latin roots. Yeah. I, 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 see, I have so much fondness for those kinds of relationships between fathers and sons and parents and children and the idea. And in fact, it really applies in so many ways when you want to try to like vary from what you traditionally has been done in your family and I, I thought it was a really great episode that one and the one that's parroting vice i think it's called drones with a z at the end where jack black acts like the head of like the editor-in-chief of vice that those two are my favorites i think i haven't seen that one but i'll have to check that it one's out. a good one yeah so uh what's recently sparked your curiosity so recently what sparked my curiosity has been this podcast called a year of polygamy which is not an old podcast, but I just discovered it. It's a spinoff of this other podcast called the Feminine Mormist Housewife, Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. And I, I'm not Mormon, <laughs> but I'm very, very interested in Mormonism and actually all religions, but Mormonism in particular, I, I grew up with a lot of Mormon friends and it was always so interesting to me, the history of it. It's such a purely American religion and so recent it feels like it was it's like part of the narrative of america with westward expansion and it feels so recent in so many ways and the, the unique culture that's developed around that i've always just been so interested in and so i've been listening to this podcast that basically explores the history of polygamy within the mormon church and how it's affected like the mormon community as a whole in in modern times and it's all done through a feminist lens which is always my jam so it's just been really interesting to explore also the idea of marriage and what a woman's role is within faith traditions and what we have women as women have fought against been complicit with uh over time this is such an interesting uh, angle for me and I'm, again, I'm not mormon so it's just from an outsider's like an anthropological perspective it's so interesting to listen to where did you grow up that you were friends with so many mormons 
Yeah, a Santa Clarita, oh, which okay. is a really weird, weird little place, um, like 40 minutes north of Los Angeles. I mean, it's still Los Angeles County, but it's like we call it the Deep Valley. <laughs> it's like way past the valley. <laughs> um, it, it's yeah, there just happens to be a lot of Mormons there, and um, yeah, just grew up, grew up around it, and was always really interested, and yeah, it just carried on to adulthood. That's super cool. So I'd love to start by asking, as somebody who's been through. A master's you've been through a master's program right okay so oh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. somebody who's got an mfa and been through a writer's fellowship nbc writers on the verge as well as had assistant experience in the writer's room before you went on to be to be writing scripts yourself i'm wondering of those experiences is there are there any lessons you remember that have really shaped your writing style oh my style or just how you write how you go about writing yeah that's a great question beyond those experiences, so not including them. Actually, I will, I do have something from beyond those experiences, actually. Um, my, one of the most useful classes, I took a lot of classes outside of undergrad and graduate school um, when I was trying to get my foot in the door with comedy. So while I was working, when I was a writer's assistant on a show called Person of Interest, which is a procedural sci-fi drama <laughs> which is not comedy but that's where I started yeah. and actually got very very lucky I'll say this I did learn I did learn how to write tv from watching drama writers honestly mm-hmm. um and, and from procedurals because procedurals are so very well structured they have to have you have to dish out the clues <clears throat> in a very specific way at a very specific time in order for the story to work and keep the audience's attention and I, I think I've taken that and I've applied those techniques of structuring a procedural mystery sometimes with the comedy writing I do. I'm um, not exactly, but it definitely taught me how to write structure and write a stru- well-structured uh, t- like teleplay. Um, and then I took a bunch of classes when I was uh, on person of interest to try to like get my comedy muscles stronger. And I took a class uh, at IO West, RIP, and um, it was a late night packet writing class uh, where we would write packets for SNL and for um, like the late night shows like Kimmel and Fallon. And I had this wonderful teacher, um, Michael McCarthy, and he recently passed away actually, but he was an SNL alum and Second City alum and just a really great comic and an even better teacher somehow. And one of the things he taught that I use to this day actually um, is like, like he would teach when you were writing jokes, like in the time that it takes to make and drink a cup of coffee, you can write like five good jokes. And his whole thing, I mean, part of like putting, putting the idea of a finite amount of time that you're working on something and doing it as like a ritual every day has really helped me so the idea that I've sort of translated onto my life is like I can accomplish something while like accomplish a small piece of writing if I only have like 30 minutes in the time that it takes me to like make and drink a cup of coffee I can do something with my time so like I try not to let those chunks I mean of course I like slack off and I like to look at Instagram or whatever but I do during my work day like I try to remind myself that every little chunk of work that I do adds up at the end of the week to like a big chunk of time I spent working on something. So that's something I've always kept with me. I like that a lot. I think 
that can even like that that's something that resonates with me even a little bit outside work hours like back when I was going to a coffee shop and actually sitting inside it which RIP hopefully I can go back and do that soon but back back when that was more of a thing I remember like you you look around a Starbucks and pretty much everybody is on their phones when they're waiting for their coffee order but I remember yeah. I, I made a concerted effort in the past year or two whenever I'm waiting for something in between like that, just to use that time to let my brain breathe and think, you know, and, and th- there were like surprisingly many moments where I'd come up with some little idea, not necessarily a breakthrough, but some little idea that got the ball rolling. And then by the time I was driving home at the end of the day, I was like, oh, that was an idea that started with me not going on Instagram and using that five or 10 minutes to think. And then I just built off That's of it really throughout the point. day. That's a really good point. I, I'll say two things on that. Um, the first is that I also am a coffee shop writer. And so it's, I've had to like find ways around that. Um, but I also found that I was way more productive in that setting. Like I could get as much done. I, I don't, I like to work efficiently as much as I can, like I was saying. And I found that I could get, <laughs> I, would, I could get as much done in the, in the amount of time. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain. The coffee shop that I work at, I mean, it, it um, it doesn't have a public bathroom. So I would <laughs> I feel go like you've tweeted about this, of, right? I feel like <laughs> maybe, yeah. yeah. So I would go and have my cup of coffee and also, I would eat, also eat there. I'd have some breakfast and I have a cup of coffee. And by the time I had to take a shit, <laughs> which was like about two hours later, like I had to leave. Like there was nothing I had to leave. And I realized like the urgency or like having a deadline and I'm going to work for two hours. I was able to get so much done yeah. because I was like, and, and it was so efficient. I didn't have to work like a 10 hour a day. On, like I was, I got what I had to get done. I would like assign myself like to them to get through act one, whatever I'm doing. I gave myself two hours to do it and I did it, you know? So it was interesting sort of like trying to game yourself by like corralling yourself into like a time frame. So you don't end up spending 10 hours on something they could just take two. Yeah. That's the, the, the first thing I'm going to say. The second thing I was going to say, oh, what was it? Coffee shop working. Oh yeah. You said, you said this, um, that you gave yourself your brain a little time to like relax and you thought of these ideas. Totally. Like turning off your brain is as valuable as like powering through or whatever. Um, today I I told you earlier that I I took an hour and a half long bath, which is not the norm for me, but I was feeling a little under the weather. So I was like, let me just get in this hot bath and see if it helps. And it totally did. And I allowed myself like the first part of the bath to just like be on Instagram and Twitter and like read the news. And then I was like, that's kind of anti-relaxing. So let me just put something on to watch. And I've been, wa- I started uh, watching master, one of the master classes. I don't know if you've ever yeah, I've watched, watched a few. Which one? I'm watching Kelly Ressler's oh. interior design. Oh, one. she's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really it, totally out of my zone, like very, very different. But as I was watching her talk about her process, actually i my brain kind of went somewhere else and i figured an answer to this project that i've been working on for a while that i like been banging my head against forever and like the answer just like came to me so there really is something to taking your mind off of what you're working on and my another great writer actually from person of interest is denise Tay, who's now on westworld had told me one summer i was like i feel like i'm out of ideas and she's like well you have to replenish the well like you have to take in information so that you can generate output. I've always thought about that too. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Always important to try to take in. 
that your first point reminds me when you were in the coffee shop and you give yourself those two hours before you leave it reminds me of that quote i i think it's it goes something like work fills the volume or the container that you provide yeah so, <laughs> goldfish will grow as big as a bowl that you give it yeah 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 but that the, the point you're making about giving your time to replenish is is super fascinating and makes me think when you're doing your own original work and you're coming up with your own ideas, how do you know whether something is just a kernel of an idea or if it's something that has legs to kind of go the distance for multiple seasons on a TV show? So great. I think I still I think I'm just learning that actually. Um, I think sometimes you'll only have a you'll have a kernel that you really like. And you won't be able to see how it's, sometimes I'm like, is this a movie or is this a series? And I, I, uh, it's funny, I pitched, um, I pitched this, I think you probably were on an email that, and saw this, but I um, pitched this idea to my, my former agent and I was like, is this, a, is this a movie or a TV show? And I was like, I think this is a movie I'm gonna work on. He's like, I think it's a TV show. And I was like, is it? And then I spent like another two years like thinking about, is this a TV show? And not taking it anywhere further. And it wasn't until I tried to sort of put it within a pilot framework. I'm like thinking about, okay, what happens in the pilot? What's the dilemma for the pilot? And what would be the dilemma for the series extrapolated from that? And it's hard to talk about because I'm giving you like vague, <laughs> I'm not giving you any specifics. But I think, I think if it's a pro, if, I think if you're, to, to answer your question, I think if you can determine that the problem your character is facing in the pilot is something that can not be solved in one episode right away, or if in solving it, it creates other problems, then you can have a series. If, but if, if, it's, if, if you don't have that, I don't think you can sustain it for very long. Hmm. So let's say you do come to the conclusion that you have an idea that you think is a viable TV idea. What is your next step? Do you outline or are you somebody who goes straight into script? No, no. I am... Um, I don't know how anybody does that. <laughs> <honestly. I don't> either. <laughs> yeah. Although I've heard of some yeah. people who do. Um, yeah, no, it's a way, it's, there's a step, there's many steps even before that. I think for me, I, um, I first start by doing a ton of research. So I wish I could talk about the project that I'm working on right now, but I can't. Um, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll try to talk about something that's, well, actually nothing I'm working on is dead yet officially, but I'll just talk in broad terms. Sure. So, <clears throat> I'll start by doing research and I like to, oh, I can talk about something. I have a sample that's old that um, I went through this process with. So the very first thing I ever, not the first thing I ever wrote, but the first thing that got me any work was a pilot called Lady Cops. And it was about women in law enforcement. Um, I was working, I said, like on person of interest and Taraji Henson was one of the leads for a few seasons. And she, she was a, a female uh, police officer. And so part of my job as a writer's assistant was to research what it's like to be a female in law enforcement. And I went, ended up going down this rabbit hole and being like, oh my God, like this is so crazy. Like what happens when you're pregnant? What happens if you have to breastfeed when you're on like a force? Like how, you know, women are treated so badly within the organizations as well. And so I spend, so when I'm researching a project, I think for that, I spent like a month just to be talking to like female cops. And just like talking to, I actually got the privilege of speaking to like female FBI office people, agents. Um, and so I think for me, research is the, the first big step, really, really, really getting to know the world. And from that research, ideas for pieces of the pilot or pieces of the series start to sort of like float to the top. 
and even for characters as well. Um, almost everything I write has some piece of me or my personal life or experience in it. I won't say that every character is me, um, but there's always a personal component to it. And so I try to find um, experiences in those areas that I can relate to. And I try to connect the two. Like what was a time in my life where I felt this way? So that I can try to channel my own feelings into this other world I've never been a part of. Um, so I would say that's my first process step is like a ton of research. Then I start by creating the main character. Who is this person? How do they see the world? And then I try to write like a really full biography for them so that by the end of it, I know exactly who they would vote for. I know how they take their coffee. <laughs> I know if they would flip somebody off, if they cut them off or if they would like let it go and then just stew over it. I try to get to know this person incredibly well. And then I build care other characters around them that would push their buttons, um, get them interested and excited. I try to build everything like a concentric circle out from this main character in that world. So would you say- And then I move on to- oh, Yeah, no, no, please go ahead, go ahead. And, and then from there, I start to, I, I have a, you know how TV writers, if for those who aren't TV writers, we often in a writer's room, we organize our story ideas on what's called the board. And we divide it up into three, four or five acts, depending on the, what kind of show you're working on. And you put note cards up on a board. <clears throat> I do that. I have a board that I work on and I start by putting the beginnings and ends of acts, the beats for the beginnings and ends of acts on the board. So what's the trigger incident? Like what kicks off our episode? And what is it? What does our character want resulting from that trigger at the bottom of act one? How is this person, how is, show me that, what, what's the first obstacle to this getting, for this person to get what they want? Top of act two, what's the new plan for this person getting what they want? Act two, bottom of act two, how, how they all fucked it up, all is lost moment. Top of act three, like a sea change. And then the resolution. And with those tent poles in place, when one, I know where I'm going, and then I can sketch in what happens in between. And then I do an outline. And then I get notes from people and I do another outline and then I get notes from people and then I write the script and get notes from the same people. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's what I was going to ask. Do you tend to go back to the same group of people or do you have like different tiers of people you go to depending on the draft? Um, I have, okay. I have two friends who I trust with all my heart <laughs> for, because time after time, I, I think because our sensibilities are the same and because I think they're really good with structure also. Um, and so I go to those two people for the outline part of it to track the story to make sure it all makes sense. And then not to tucker them out, but sometimes I'll ask them again to like read the draft. Um, that's usually for outline. And then, then, I'll, then I'll write the draft and inevitably it's too long. And then I have a different set of people I ask to help me find cuts and punches. So, and I definitely, I reciprocate. I, they email me, can you help me find cuts and touches? But also like recently I've started like gifting people for their time. Like if they're going to read my script or give me notes, like you're getting a gift card, honey, because like, I know your time is valuable. And after a while it gets to be like, oh my God, another draft of this. So um, yeah, it's, they're different people that are, I had that have other, have different skills that they are able to help with. That's a great system because I feel like I have different sets of people I share drafts with just because I 
want people with fresh eyes to be reading it but i haven't really thought like oh i know this friend of mine is good with punch-ups let me save it for the punch-up stage that's a really smart way to go about it and they yeah. get gift cards yeah. <laughs> and they get gift cards that's, i've started doing that so yeah i've um really grateful that i have so many talented friends <laughs> that's awesome and generous friends yeah. yeah so okay putting aside your own original work and and it's kind of switching gears to a writer's room you've in the past year you've been on a couple shows that were in their first season so they were kind of mm-hmm. discovering their characters um and and their arcs and things like that can you talk a bit about the experience of being in a first season writer's room and how that's a little different from a, a show that's been on for one or two seasons already yeah i actually have to say the majority of the shows i've been on have been first season shows the person of interest was the first season show Brooklyn Nine-Nine was the first season oh, show. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you were there in this first season. Yeah, seasons one and two. Um, after that, People of Earth was the first season show. Abby was the oh, first yeah. season show. Um, yeah. Diary of Future President, first season show. Love Life. And One Day at a Time was in its fourth season. Yeah. So I was lucky that all those characters <laughs> are all set up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I have a lot of experience with that. Luckily, I feel like the majority of those shows, um, the, sh- the creators have come in with very strong ideas about who their protagonists are, as they've done that same kind of work, like they get to know the person, like the back of their hand, um, and well enough to be able to be like, this is what this person would do, this is what they would want, what they wouldn't want. I don't think I've ever really experienced someone I don't think you can sell a show without knowing that. I think when you pitch something, you really have to sell them on who this character is, what's the way they see the world and that sort of thing. But developing like auxiliary characters, I have seen the, I have seen that change. And I think that it's sort of part of my concentric circle theory, which is like, once you've built out how this person <clears throat> is, the way that they interact with other people, you might've you might, you might thought that like, you wanted a you wanted your main character to have like a goofy best friend and a mean neighbor or and a and a horny boss or whatever. But then as you're writing it, you see oh no, like actually, it doesn't really serve the, the arc of the story or the growth of this character over time for to ha- for her to have a goofy friend or whatever. Uh, that that friend should be like loyal and supportive and like there for her. And it's the, it's the neighbor that should be horny. Those are all bad examples. But you try, you, you definitely modulate um, those other characters as you, you, you discover stories and dimensions of your protagonists when you're talking to other people in the writer's room. Because the great thing about being in a writer's room is that you have so many different points of view from people. And that's when I think your characters go from being like a really good like painting to becoming three-dimensional because you're getting all this like juicy life stuff from people that really help flesh flesh out all the characters the things you would never even have thought of on your own somebody else brings up and you're like oh yeah that's what it should be yeah there's a component like you're saying of really fun discovery in that first season of a writer's room and paired with a strong vision from a showrunner i think that goes a long way and i'm curious like once it comes time to actually go off and write the outline or the script, what do you think um, empowers you and enables you to 
lean into a showrunner's voice because that that's ultimately the job of you know going off the outliner script is you want to come back with something that your showrunner feels good about proceeding with how do you think how do you think you you do a good job of that of executing their vision yeah um i i think well, hopefully you're not the second episode because that's always like <laughs> <laughs> the hardest one to do hopefully you've had a couple before you and yeah. you've gone through the revision process of one or two with that showrunner creator to see the corrections that they've made like um you could you could see oh they don't like when i end the scene with this kind of a joke or oh they don't like it they don't want this character to make to speak this way they'll correct you and that's one of the benefits of of doing rewrites as a room so like you can go off and make mistakes and that's inevitable like you'll try your best you'll try your best to match the pilot voice and it really, really helps if the pilot has been shot. Sometimes the pilot hasn't been shot and sometimes the pilot hasn't been written. Mm. And that's pretty tricky. But I think if, you, if you've had the benefit of like being able to do revisions and watch the creator do revisions, you'll better understand wh what they're going for in terms of tone and voice and um, even the way writing is on the page. I have some, some, I've had some bosses who are very particular about the way you write the margins, like the action lines, like you can't underline or italicize this, you can't put an exclam there. Uh, it's been, um, everyone has their little like ticky tacky things that they're like particular about. So yeah, I think, I think the best way to do it is just by really watching very, very closely the creator showrunner um, right before you go off to write your own thing just really pay attention to what they do and don't like and then once you do get let's say your first set of revisions does mm -hmm. your process like if i were shadowing you as you're doing rewrites would it look pretty similar to when you were off on outline or script or do you have a different process or different things you incorporate when you're working on revisions yeah so it's it, yeah they are different um so if I'm doing revisions that are prescribed, like the notes that have come from the network and have gotten past, filtered down through my showrunner and then gotten to me, um, it will look exactly different because there's no real brainstorming involved. It becomes far more surgical. The note is given to you the, and the, sometimes even the way to implement the note is given to you. That's like the best when they've already figured out the solution. <laughs> and you're just like, here's how you go fix this and I'll go do it. Um, but sometimes there's stuff to be figured out and I, and that's when there's like full rebreaks of stuff. And sometimes when you get to an upper level, the expectation is that you'll figure it out and pitch it to them. And if they do or don't like it, uh, they'll tell you. So um, I would say depending on the type of revisions they are, um, the process is different. I'll go into a version where like a rebreak is necessary because it also kind of covers what my own revisions look like when I'm revising my own stuff which is um, that I have a document. Like if I'm trying to figure out something, um, it, say, if, for example, the note is something like, we don't really think this scene best exemplifies the protagonist's want. That's like a revision of the whole scene. And that has ripple effects throughout, yeah. right? And so if I'm like, okay, crap, like how can I better exemplify this protagonist's want or whatever? I have a document that I work in where it's just a brainstorm where I just, free up full on just monologue to myself as I'm typing like 
as though I were talking in a writer's room, but it's just like, I'm having a conversation and a dialogue with myself. Like, what if there, is there a version where we do this? Okay, if we do this and it would, it would influence the next scene like this. And I try to play out the scenes like in prose in front of me. Um, and I think that's very different than <laughs> having someone be like, just, uh, you know, trim this scene and punch up the end. You know what I mean? So it just sort of depends like, where you are in the revision process and how much of a revision it is yeah that's funny because i've heard of people have different ways of kind of tricking themselves into working on a revision so it's interesting you talk about putting it in prose i've heard of people they'll yeah. open a new email in their inbox and they'll just write stuff so they're not in final draft so they're not under the pressure of script but they're just like writing an email and it's less pressure oh yeah <laughs> yeah for sure I, I absolutely feel the same way google docs is full of my crazy ramblings for revision stuff so taking even a step back as you're kind of what we call blue skying when you're just throwing out ideas uh, for what a season of a series, season of a show could look like um, for people who aren't familiar with that process. Could you briefly describe what that's like and what what's going through your mind in those initial, you know, that initial week or two as you're free to pitch anything pretty much as, as a staff writer, you mean? Sure. Like you know, that's actually an interesting point. How how is it different? Wait, as a staff writer coming into a blue sky versus an upper level? Oh, I wasn't even talking about that. I was oh. thinking like when you're on staff as a writer. Oh, sure, sure. sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, versus when I do it for my own staff. Sure. Um, yeah. When you're a writer on staff and um, I, I do, yeah, I think it's, if it's a first season show, um, I remember, I, re I can tell you what I, what I do, what I have done. Um, because at that point, like you're still trying to figure out what the arc is sometimes and there kind of are no wrong answers you can take some pretty big swings um so i take what i know of the characters from the pilot hopefully and this is a technique i i got from my college uh comedy sitcom writing teacher fred rubin who is the most wonderful person in the world um he his technique for coming up with a b and c stories um was that we would get a stack of old magazines <clears throat> and every, each person would get like a stack of like 10 or 15. And I still do this, but I do it with the internet. I'll explain how later. So I get stacks of um, these magazines and then you just flip through them visually. You don't read the articles. You don't look at the words. You just look at pictures and you write down ones that catch your eye. So like I'll flip through a page and I'll see like a cat and a lobster, medication, vacation, um, uh, oh, a wedding. Like, you just write down different like words that visually pop into your head when you're looking at those pictures. And by the end of going through all of them, you have a list of like 100 words and you go through them and you look at them. And you're like, I don't know how this magic happens, but almost every single time when you look at a word like wedding, for example, you're like, oh, an episode where someone gets married. Oh my God. Okay. You can think of like um, okay, if there's a, that's an episode, then you can think of like a, a conflict in there. So like um, Ben, Ben has Ben has to go to Ben's the best guy, best Ben at a wedding, but he's lost the rings, and so it's an episode about Ben trying to get the rings back. Do you know what I mean? You can do any version of that, and you'll often see like which ones seem like they're bigger stories, like an A story, and you'll see which ones could be like a smaller B story, supportive, like cat food. Oh yeah. Um, Monica discovers that Phoebe's cat is allergic to the, the uh, cat food she's been eating. And so she has to 
find out a way to convince she, this is terrible, maybe <laughs> to make her cat <laughs> vegan now or whatever. This is the worst pitch ever. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> My friend's pitch that are 20, 20 years too late and very bad. Um, so, cause I don't think Monica would ever tolerate a cat. Um, so yeah. And then you can figure out same for, for runners, but I still use that technique with random image generator online. Um, sometimes you have, you have to click the box that says, um, no adult images <laughs> or, or you can, but if you don't, all you get is porn. So basically <laughs> you can get some really interesting, uh, photos otherwise though. Yeah. And it's very helpful to sort of like quickly generate some words and ideas and get you off and running. Whoa, I love that. That's so cool. So, <laughs> so once you have, okay, so let's say once you've blue skied, the room has come up with the vision for the season and you've written your episode, you've gone through revisions and now you're at a, you're at a level where you're producing. So I know you've covered set before and producer has a lot of different responsibilities. Could you explain what it means to be a producer level writer on a comedy show and kind of the, the response, the added responsibilities that can come with that? Sure. It's different for every show too. <clears throat> I think some showrunners love having the help uh, and others just prefer to do it all themselves. I, um, I, I, the experiences I've had are the following. I have helped with casting. So like I've watched auditions and weighed in on who I think would be good for what role. I have helped with um, like physical production stuff, like helping, helping determine like what kind of steps we need moving forward and talking to the line producer about what we need for my episode. Um, gone on location scouts and tech scouts, like making sure that locations that we've picked to do for filming are good and appropriate for the scene. Um, I've done, been in post and editing, given notes on cuts. Um, I've given notes on uh, mixes and um, I've also helped with, let's see what other things that we've been doing on a producing level. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, I have a background as a, line producer and production manager so i've even had the occasion where i've been able to talk to the line producer about how to perhaps like collapse like shoot some things across different episodes to make the budget work a little bit better so uh yeah there's any variety of things but basically uh i think oh i'm talking to the director being on set and, and and that's like kind of the most important thing is when you're covering set your the, your your directors are usually visiting. If you're not lucky enough to have a producing director, which is the person that basically helps supervise all the visiting directors, you need to be there to make sure that the visiting director gets the tone of the show visually, like they've watched the episodes, or if they haven't had a lot of episodes to watch, explain like we're trying to get this kind of coverage. Oh no, we don't do that kind of shot. Um, making sure that we think we've got the performance as we've discussed it in the room from the actors um making sure like the actors feel happy because you're the consistent presence um on set if you have visiting directors so yeah i think that is a pretty good summary of all the things that writer producer does yeah and it's it's kind of an interesting time now that a lot of shows are being written first in their entirety and then production happens so the traditional model as i as i understand it was oftentimes there was a lot more overlap than we have today and it was more common for writers to go to set or, or to the edit bay and it happens a little less now how do you think it does. yeah how do you think somebody could could get 
put themselves in those kinds of positions um or is it or is it just the nature of how things are where it's going to happen less and less it's also budget based yeah. i think like for example like if you're working on if you're working on a show that's on location like say your writer's room was in la but you're shooting in new york they want the studio wants you to get home as soon as possible like if you if you don't have to, if you don't absolutely have to be there you're going home like there's more even be an opportunity for you to stay in post like if you maybe you'll maybe you'll maybe you'll be there to cover set yeah they have the studios have stopped doing that now too which is something i think we're going to talk about in our union negotiations but maybe you have to be there on set often they just put way too much responsibility on the showrunner to try to do everything at once or it's just impossible the showrunner being a showrunner by the way i think is the job for two people just in general yeah. uh, it's too much work for just one person um and and but if you you're not going to stay for post like they don't need you to i mean you should be producing your episode but they're going to claim that the showrunner can do that so it's happening less and less because they think they can cut corners i think you can i think you can see where the corners are cut particularly because they're running showrunners into the ground and when you get tired you miss mistakes you miss things and you ha end up doing reshoots and end up doing like expensive cg to correct things so it's a little penny wise and pound foolish i think but um i i last uh i've, I've this year in the last year and a half i think i worked on 50 50 like two of the shows i got to be on set for all the time and in post and then two of them I just not, not not at all. So I don't I don't know what's going to happen. I think a lot of it depends on budget and the union negotiations. Hmm. Yeah. And now that you're in a position where you can evaluate other people's pilots and other people's work and see if it's something you want to proceed with, what kind of lens are you approaching that with? Is it similar to the process when you're doing your own work that you talked about? Is this an idea that has legs or are there other, any other factors that come into play for you? Yeah, both. Um, I think it's such a fresh process. I think um, I'm just learning this too. So from, I think for the, for me, it needs to speak to something or have the room to speak to something that I personally care about. So issues of gender equality or um, relationships, certain kinds of relationship struggles, um, issues of like, um being a an adult child of parents or maternity like it, it needs to be something that i can help and be like connected to mm -hmm. um and i if if i don't see that mm -hmm. or i don't see an angle there it doesn't have to be all about that but if it, there isn't something that i can latch on to and help develop i probably i'm not going to be interested in in the project also i really gravitate towards like stories by women and women of color and people of color in general, because that's been my experience. And um, even if the writer isn't, I try to find ways to wedge, <laughs> wedge, wedge some ideas like that in there. Um, it's, um, and then for the longevity of it all, I think it's pretty easy to see right in the beginning if there's longevity or not. If the character, I said, it's all based on the character. If the character is complex enough, and their dilemma as it's being pitched to you is complicated enough, you have a show. Um, and if the character is too one-dimensional, and, and I usually don't make a decision if I'm gonna work with somebody until after I've had a few interactions with them. We're talking about the project and 
Um, I want to like get a good sense of them, who they are as people, what their values are, what their what their ethics seem to be, um, and how hard they're willing to work, honestly. Um, and it's a conversation. And if I if if I feel like in the process they're open to like playing with the idea and growing it and not just being narrow about what they think it is, um, then it generally like indicates it'll be a good partnership. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, if, if you, if, if, but if the person doesn't know who their character is and they're just trying to pitch you like a flashy idea, mm-hmm. probably isn't going to be the best project, you know, yeah. it all, it all comes from the characters. So whether it's with somebody who you're collaborating with or an original idea of your own, once you feel ready to go out and pitch it, what's your process like preparing to pitch something? Sure. So over the years, I've, um got i just sort of refined my own sort of pitch format and pitch document it's based on a couple different pitch documents that were handed down to me from other writers so what they did it's sort of like a nice an heirloom thing that you can do to help other writers just like pass your pitch documents down and um i it's actually what one of the steps i forgot to mention that i do when i'm trying to start a new project but basically um, I, I, I write it all out by prose and I start with the log line. Like, what is this show? Who is this character? What's their dilemma? What actions do they take, you know, to solve their dilemma and reach their goal? And if I can't articulate that clearly at the top of my page, then I have a problem. <laughs> so I start with that and try to get that really, really clear. And then I start by talking about um, the concept, like what inspired me to write this like why am i interested in writing this and what's my connection to the material and then i go in and um pitch sort of who the characters are um and from there i talk about who uh what's the pilot like the very like broad strokes of what the pilot is and then i pitch some ideas like future episodes and where where the show is going to go beyond season one i give like a little brief outline of what season one would be like basically just start beginning middle line you don't have to fill in the whole blank but like in the beginning of season one like ben's really really trying hard to make a podcast and in the middle of season one his podcast is like he's being accused of plagiarism for the idea for his podcast so and then the end we'll find that ben actually has won this this war about his podcast and in fact his podcast has gotten picked up on Sirius XM. He's going to be famous. And that's the throw forward to season two. Right. So I try to give him like a sense of like what's going to happen later in season two and like where is it going? And it's a journey about this young like entrepreneur Ben trying to fight in the big world of podcasts <laughs> and discovering what his forte is and like winning at the end of the day. So it's like you're really trying to paint a picture, not just creatively, but like business-wise mm-hmm. what is the product that you're selling and how is it going to be like um not just a seasonal item do you know what i mean yeah so when you start with this idea when you're just brainstorming it do you tend to start with a character like for the sake of this example ben the podcaster or do you mm-hmm. think of a do you start with story or a setting or is it a bit mixture of all of those does that make sense um yes it does and i'm trying to think of the answer um let's see what I've written and what, how I've done it. So for Lady Cop, it definitely started with the world. I knew I wanted to write something about women in law enforcement, yeah. but I didn't know what yet. Yeah. And then as I did my research, a certain character trait emerged from my research. I was like, oh, 
a character looks like this would be really really funny mm -hmm. so i think it i think it starts from the world the world first yeah and then characters emerge yeah yeah that's cool. Yeah. I've talked to people who have, who are like you and start with the world. And I find I'm, I'm a little that way myself. And I know other people who start with a character in mind and build out from there. So it's cool, cool to hear different perspectives. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I'd be curious to, yeah, listen to those. <laughs> yeah. So now that we've gotten the bridge Munoz Leva was masterclass in comedy, I'll, uh, I'll wind <laughs> down with some little rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What's an app that you can't live without? Oh, I use the app I can't live without is the notes app on my phone. Yeah. I literally write everything down. And sometimes for fun, I'll go back a few years and just like read some of the things I've written down. And it, it's, I like for fun, we'll like post pictures of them online because they're so insane. And I won't know what I've, I, passwords that I've forgotten, <laughs> like part of a poem like a joke that I wrote when I was like maybe a little drunk and it's like not funny at all like and then sometimes really 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 good ideas and important shopping lists so this is an app that I rely on heavily I'm personally a big fan of the Evernote app I don't know if you used Evernote but I haven't tried it no I find it's like a little easier to index than the Apple Notes app but uh in general same sentiment I'm with you there it's fun to look back yeah. at old notes <laughs> yeah love doing that yeah who would you like yeah. to play you in a movie about your life? Um, I would like Shirley Temple to play me, <laughs> but I want the movie to be about like specifically the era in my life when I got really into tap dancing <laughs> as a child. <laughs> but wanted to be a child star. Fair enough. And yeah. if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? Uh, how to play guitar. Mm. That would be guitar is so hard. I don't know what about my brain. It doesn't want to understand it but like i can play the ukulele i can play piano i play the flute played flute all through college like i i'm a musical person mm -hmm. but for some reason my brain cannot compute how the guitar is supposed to work like i can't i can put my fingers where the chords are and i can strum the pattern but like to to do multiple like pickings and to try to have a melody and like the but also have chords but also have it's just like it's too much. It's overload. That's interesting. And I so admire it. Because I yeah. feel like if you can get piano, I feel like piano is the gateway where once you can master piano, then everything else kind of falls into place. But no, the guitar remains elusive. Guitar is so hard. <laughs> yeah, piano. And I also think like, I was never, <laughs> I'm not a master of piano by any means. Like I can like, I can play a fake book yeah. of, you know, Billy Joel songs. But like, I, I, and also I started piano as my first instrument. Mm -hmm. So like when you're a kid, I think you're a lot more, your mind is so much more like a sponge and nimble and yeah. like the, the neural pathways are open. And when you get older, I, I don't, I also have like some kind of spatial dyslexia. I don't know what to call it, but I've always kind of had it. Like I can't identify, um, shape so like you ever had to do a physics lab where they tell you about reflection and refraction yeah like which can't do any of those like i don't I'm not good at assembling things so like i think it's because the guitar is like on its side maybe oh interesting and but but then there's like vertical like frets but then there's horizontal strings it just it like slows my mind i can't <laughs> figure it out <laughs> well at yeah. least you can play all those other instruments that's a great skill in and yeah. of itself <laughs> yeah um, and then where is a place that you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? I want to go to Iceland. So, 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 yes. so bad. I haven't wanted to go for such a long time. 
I've wanted to go for years and my roommate went a few years ago and, and, and enjoyed it. And he went on Wow Airlines for, I think, like under $400 round trip. And Wow yep. Airlines no longer exists. <laughs> RIP. I know. Yeah. I When I was living in New York, I used to ride the subway like everybody else. <laughs> I said that like it was like a unique thing. No. <laughs> I used to, there was this thing called the subway and it was amazing. No. I rode the subway and they would always have the advertising for Wow Airlines. Yeah. It was like, go to Reykjavik for like $400. And I was like, that's why I, I went up. But um, I was like, we got to go. Like I, I was in grad school and I was like broke, but I was like 400 bucks. Like I'll put that on my student loans. Like whatever, let's go. And I just never did. And regret it, regret it to this day. And I've always wanted to go for the pickled fish, for the tiny horses, for the nature, the, the mineral baths, all that. Oh, it was so great. Well, one day you'll get there and it'll be even sweeter because you waited so long for it. Yeah. Oh, and the elves. I forgot about them. The elves are a nice one too. Yeah. And lastly, what's your jam? As in a song you like to jam to? Because we're going to, we have a Spotify playlist where we add all our guest song recs to it. So if there's one song oh, you'd like man. to contribute, what would it be? Uh, the song lately has been on my mind because I make a playlist for everything that I write and the project that I'm working on that I cannot talk about. Um, one of the an ABBA song is very inspiring for me which is but does your mother know <laughs> by ABBA been jamming out to that a lot lately amazing wait so you do listen to music while you write oh um, when I at a certain stage yeah. I I do it when I'm outlining mm. or brainstorming but not when I'm writing dialogue I can't oh interesting okay yeah. I can listen yeah. to music without lyrics but lyrics will destroy me so I'll listen to like yeah, instrumental sure. jazz but yeah oh, oh that's nice too yeah I haven't tried that yeah yeah, I'm a fan of the Jazzy Morning playlist on Spotify for anybody who, like will, me, writes to jazz. I will look it up. Yeah, it's nice. a good one. All right, Jazzy Morning. It's a good <laughs> one. And uh, where can people find you online or on social media? Uh, at Bridgeleaves, so B-R-I-G-L-I-E-B-S for Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. And if anyone and apparently to... I'm on LinkedIn too. I didn't know this, but somebody told me recently I have a LinkedIn profile that Do... I did not make. Oh, so somebody went. <laughs> you have somebody made a I... LinkedIn profile for you? Yeah, I guess. Does that mean I'm famous now, Ben? I guess. I don't know. Do you think it's like <laughs> someone you know or just a random person? I have no idea. Is it, maybe this is the closest I'll ever come to having a stalker. I feel <laughs> I feel like so honored. That's such a civil stalker. They made you a LinkedIn. <laughs> helpful <laughs> i know um yeah. and yeah if anybody wants to check out the pod you can do that on instagram at hdyd pod thank you bridge this has been super informative and so fun my pleasure thank you so much for the fun podcast